If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. Trying to get back on that weekly schedule. Always busy, always crazy, always lots to talk about. And this week uh, is always no exception. So let's start with this week's Out of the Gate and get right into it. So, I want to thank Beto, uh, or I mean Robert Francis O'Rourke. He has been a blessing in disguise during this early presidential election cycle. Now, why is Robert Francis a blessing? Yeah, it's pretty simple, actually. Robert has been completely honest and forthcoming in his positions and goals for president. And while I may detest the man's political aspirations, I respect him for his truthfulness. You see, Robert has become completely unhinged and knows he has no shot at winning the nomination. I mean, he couldn't beat Ted Cruz with hundreds of millions of dollars flowing in from California. So what makes him think he can use that to springboard into the Oval Office? With his vanishing poll numbers and chances at becoming the nominee, Robert is only relevant because of his outrageous claims of what he plans to do. Now, the most popular position he has been taking is that he is going to confiscate your guns, all your guns. He dropped the whole, quote, buyback narrative and instead going with the confiscation rhetoric. He's just coming out and saying it. It's not buyback, it's confiscation. He's come right out and said that he plans to march law enforcement to everyone's home and start rounding up your guns. Sounds a little brown shirtish, right? It's because the left's main goal has always been one single thing. Total and complete control by using the power of the state to run over your civil liberties. Robert is just crazy enough to say it out loud. While most Democrats tiptoe around issues that would turn middle America off to their campaign... Robert is diving right in with complete totalitarian talking points and is unapologetic about it. He's also unapologetic about how we need to cede all control of our economy over to the government for the sake of climate change. The climate change argument, as I have covered, is simply coded speak to hand over all your freedom and civil liberties to the government because, like, the world is totally going to end in, like, 12 years, so we have to act fast and now. So, yeah. I want to thank Robert Francis O'Rourke for his courage to speak the truth about what the left really wants and to put it on display for all to see. While candidates like Elizabeth Warren can't answer a simple question about whether any of her plans will raise taxes on the middle class, spoiler alert, they will, Robert has the brevity to speak the truth to the people. So, thank you, Robert Francis O'Rourke. Thank you for laying it all out for everyone to see. What leftists really talk about in their safe spaces and behind closed doors. While they may come out as gee golly moderates, most Democrats are wolves in sheep's clothing when it comes to what they want. And it's total and complete control. If there's any doubt what leftists wants, and you're not sure, just listen to a Robert Robert Francis O'Rourke speech and you'll get the whole picture. I'm just glad we learned this well in advance of the election year. So Robert Francis O'Rourke, I don't want to take too much time to talk about. Obviously, he's coming out with this gun confiscation thing. And this leads right into my first story that I want to talk about. 
which is that Elizabeth Warren has been having a little bit of a problem with, how do you say, um, being able to honestly or forthcomingly say how she's going to pay for everything and whether or not it's going to raise taxes on the middle class. Because anything a politician does, if there's anything a politician does, the, the third rail that will never, ever get you elected is to say, I'm going to raise taxes on the middle class. And they will dance around it. They'll say things, they'll say their normal slogans like, you know, we're going to tax the billionaires and the millionaires and there shouldn't be billionaires in this society and this is immoral to have billionaires. They'll tiptoe around it and they'll use their talking points and their red meat to get people to say, oh, yeah, obviously that makes sense. But when it comes to saying whether or not they're actually going to tax the middle class, they'll, they'll dive around it. And since Elizabeth Warren knows she's most likely at this point statistically going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party and she's going to have to run against Donald Trump in the general election and she's going to have to probably move off of some of her far left speech talking points. She can't come out and say, well, yeah, my plan is going to tax the middle class because Donald Trump, President Donald Trump is going to run with that and kill you over it because he'll just say, well, look, she wants to raise your taxes. I cut your taxes and more money was in your paycheck. So if you want to give up more money to the federal government, go right ahead. Go right ahead and vote for Elizabeth Warren because she'll take more money out of your paycheck. Meanwhile, I have been taking less money out of your paycheck. I've been giving you pay cuts. I've been giving your businesses pay or tax cuts. So, um, and this is what has been contributing to this enormous growth in the economy is obviously the deregulation, the tax cuts, all of that has been an enormous uh, boost for the economy, which is why we're seeing outrageous numbers, why we're seeing record low unemployment numbers, and why we're seeing a lot of people who aren't foreclosing on houses, our foreclosures are down, why we're starting to see incomes rise, why we're starting to see uh, the average middle class monthly salary is going up by a lot. Um, but Elizabeth Warren is dancing around the subject. So this is a piece from Town Hall, and it's called I Popping Liberal Think Tank Projects Enormous Price Tag for Warren's Single-Payer Plan. Now, this is something that they're all jumping on with this single-payer idea. It starts, nothing terribly new here, except for the fact that leftists can't dishonestly dismiss out of hand these cost projections for single-payer health care. Previous similar estimates were lazily derided as Koch-funded, which does not seriously attempt to grapple with the calculations themselves, but nobody can remotely accuse the left-wing Urban Institute of being some right-wing front. They'd already put out an astronomical number on the 10-year price tag of single-payer healthcare, but updated figures further underscore how enormous the expenditure would be via the Atlantic. And this is the part from the Atlantic, says the Urban Institute, a center-left think tank, Highly respected among Democrats is projecting that a plan similar to what Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders are pushing would require $34 trillion in additional federal spending over its first decade in operation. That's more than the federal government's total cost over the coming decade for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid combined. According to the most recent Congressional Budget Office projections, in recent history, only during the height of World War II has the federal government tried to increase taxes as a share of the economy as fast as it would be to offset the cost of single-payer plan federal figures show there are quote no analogous peacetime tax increases unquote says leonard burnham 
a public administration professor at Syracuse University and a former top tax official in both the Bill Clinton administration and at the CBO. Raising that much more tax revenue, quote, is plausible in the sense that it is theoretically possible, unquote, Berman told me. But the revolution that would come along with it would get in the way. Town Hall goes on to say such gargantuan tax increases are, in fact, theoretically possible. Re, uh, but uh, the PSXR notes that throughout the campaign, Warren refused to provide any specifics about how she would fund a single payer plan. Instead, whether questioned by moderators or challenged by other candidates, she recycled variants on the same talking points she has used in various venues. She is avoiding this question like the plague because she knows that bruising across the board tax increases are unavoidable to fund this game that would add roughly $3.4 trillion in new spending each year. Now, the federal government only spends about $4 trillion last year and is already racking up uh, enormous deficits because of it. The Warren-friendly media is now trying to frame questions about this glaring issue as Republican aiding, off-limit gotchas, despite the fact that, quote, how will you pay for X, Y, or Z is the veritable definition of a legitimate policy question, especially for someone who holds herself as out to be as a wonky planner. This gaslighting from a prominent journalism professor is quite revealing. Thou shall not ask questions of candidates might help Republicans. And this is a tweet from Jay Rosen on Twitter. He says, the, quote, make Elizabeth Warren say she would raise taxes on the middle class question, unquote, should be a credibility killer for the journalists who keep asking it. The lefty rebuttal to the tax increase question is that the net net, many people will pay less overall as their premiums and deductibles are eliminated. That math is not clean, however, as the overall cost of single payer and therefore taxes could soar even higher as on paper anticipated government savings fail to materialize. Private coverage would be outlawed under Warren's plan, but long time, long wait times and government rationing could likely lead to an outcry in favor of supplementary plans, which would raise people's costs even further. Also, why should anyone trust lower cost assurances from the same people who dishonestly peddled the Affordable Care Act, which utterly failed in its core premise? And I'll leave you with this reminder, Pete, Mayor Pete pressing this point further after this week's debate, um, saying that she is more interested in how many selfies she has taken rather than how her plan is going to be funded. Obviously, this is just um, more posturing from the front runner, as she knows she's going to have to slowly bring her positions back. Even if she try, if she can get all the way through, assuming she gets all the way through the general election and no one asks her this poignant question of how are you going to do this plan without raising taxes on the middle class, people can see the writing on the wall. A single payer health care plan is going to raise taxes on the middle class because everyone's going to have to foot the bill one way or another. This is scary, and this relates to California now because you know you have Gruesome Newsome up there who is obsessed with the single-payer health care plan. And not only that, it's the same kind of, I guess it's the way California goes, the rest of the nation goes, because you have a plan that is going to not only be for taxpayers who, guess this, I mean, guess what? You're going to pay into it no matter whether you're middle class or rich or whatever, you're going to end up paying for this plan. You're also going to end up spending it on people who are not taxpayers. Now, California is already floating or already gives out the idea that you can, if you're an illegal immigrant, you can get health care here through California plans. Who pays for that? Well, that pay, that comes from Californians, people who are here 
who are paying their taxes. Now, how is she going to get around this? I don't know. I don't know how she's going to get around this. This is a big glaring problem for a lot of these socialist left uh, Democrats who have gone so far to the left that they can't. I can't foresee them coming back. This ties in with the whole theory of why I think they're going after impeachment with, with Donald Trump because they looked at their field of candidates. If it was so easy to beat Donald Trump in 2020, who cares about impeachment? Who cares about miring him in impeachment proceedings if they knew that he was going to be super easy to beat? If he had, if let's say he was George W. Bush at the end of his second term and he had 25 or 30% approval rating and his, his approval rating was in the tank. But he doesn't. He floats around that that normal area, everyone goes, oh, well, he's underwater, so I don't know how good this looks for him. But if you look at poll numbers kind of across the board, he's sort of at the same place that President Obama was at during his, and sometimes he's actually ahead of where President Obama was in certain times of his presidency at the same time. How they're going to force this on people is beyond me. And you're starting to see some Democrats wisely use it as ammo against Elizabeth Warren. If you watch the last Democratic debate, and I only watch highlights of it because I don't want to sit through three hours of them yammering on about how much they hate President Donald Trump. But you started to see more and more people going after the front runner. You can always tell who the front runner is in any election simply because you have to look at who's being attacked. So when Joe Biden was the front runner, Everyone was going after Joe Biden. Now Elizabeth Warren is the front runner. So guess what? Everyone came in going after Elizabeth Warren. And by the way, if you saw her body language, she looked uncomfortable kind of being attacked. It didn't look like she was comfortable with the attacks, um, which I'm going to tell you right now, Donald Trump had no problem going after Hillary Clinton. He's going to have no problem going after Elizabeth Warren, as you can see with his continued attacks, calling her Pocahontas and all that stuff. So if you think Donald Trump is going to be nice to Elizabeth Warren if she gets out on the campaign trail and she is the nominee, you've got another thing coming. Can she stand on the stage with Donald Trump? I don't know. It may be a visually it might be one of those scenes that you look at and go, who do I want as commander in chief? Do I want Elizabeth Warren or do I want Donald Trump? But the fact of the matter is, is that you just can't put these audacious plans out there and try and pull the wool over people's eyes and say it's never going to increase middle class taxes. It's the same here in California. California continues to say, well, we have the biggest economy in the country. We're the fifth largest economy. Yeah, okay, okay. But we also are 17th in the world when it comes to uh, income inequality. If we were our own country, we have the highest homeless rate and poverty rate out of the entire nation. So we're already starting to get towards that income inequality socialist type of haves and have nots here in California. We don't see a middle class anymore because the middle class is taxed to death. It's too expensive. Everything's expensive. And that's what happens with these big leftist plans is that they don't tell you the little fees and taxes and all the regulations that's going to come down the pike and how it's going to make they always tell you it's the free stuff the free stuff and this is what happened in venezuela they fell for it they fell for you want free stuff give me free stuff and everyone says oh i'm going to get free stuff from the government this is great and then all of a sudden when the bill comes everyone kind of looks at it and goes whoa i didn't expect it to cost this much for free stuff but it always happens that way 
I don't think it's going to sink Elizabeth Warren when it comes to the Democrats. She's the new Bernie. She's the female Bernie. Bernie was hot in 2016 because he was that far left socialist candidate and he was the only other option, viable option to Hillary Clinton. Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, she's the new it girl right now and she's the front runner and people see her as, oh, we're going to run another woman and, but she also ticks off all those boxes of being super progressive. How does that play out when it comes to the general election? I'm going to guess it's not going to play out well at all when you have people on wall street who are sending in letters to newspapers and saying look if you nominate elizabeth warren i can tell you all me and my stockbroker buddies on wall street the people with money who are really funding democrats they don't want to tell you that see they want to rail against the billionaires and all the rich people but they don't want to tell you that behind closed doors they're still taking money from those on Wall Street and the elite bankers and all that stuff. They don't, they're not going to tell you that. They're going to make it sound like, I'm for the little people. I'm for the little guy. I'm for the middle class. But then all of a sudden, they're running behind closed doors and getting their huge donation checks from the Wall Street bankers and those elite bankers uh, in New York and all over the country. But if you have bankers and stockbrokers already who are saying, look, if you nominate Elizabeth Warren, we're sitting it out. That's a huge problem for the Democratic Party because that's a huge block of your fundraising just went up in smoke. And if you can't compete with Donald Trump right now, who is raking in the money, I think he already raked in like $150 million. I mean, it's enormous amounts of money he's raking in compared to the Democrat candidates. And he's just sitting back and he's just raking in more money, raking in more money, and he's not spending any of it, which is the sort of the... The best thing about being in the incumbent. You just sit by and wait until the opponent's long primary is over. And after they've spent all this money and they're exhausted, now they have to gear themselves up for the general election. As the incumbent, you just kind of walk out and say, okay, here I am with, you know, half a billion dollars in funding ready to go. So it'll be interesting to see how Elizabeth Warren continues to tap dance her way around all of these subjects. Now, speaking of sort of the big audacious leftist plans, there are these or protests going on in London. And it is a group called the Extinction Rebellion. And what they've been doing is they've been, you can look it up online. Of course, I post all the articles that I read from in the show notes. So if you ever want to go and read these for yourself, you can kind of go through and you can see the videos. Um, But there's this group called Extinction Rebellion, and they've been staging protests throughout London for a while now. And I'm sure you've seen some of the the photo or the videos of people, them blocking traffic and stuff like this. The, the, The videos they're showing here is disruption on the tube or what they call it. It's their subway over in London. And the video goes on to show how normal people were fed up with it. They just say, look, we're, we're tired of you holding up our, our day. We just want to get home or we just want to get to work. And this is just an example of how the climate change activism that's going on right now is not a winning argument for those on the left. Of course, there's going to be people, if you ask them a general question and you say, Hey, 
do you think we should do something about climate change or do you think it's a problem? Well, they've been fed enough stuff through the mainstream media. They've been fed enough stuff through Hollywood and all that stuff. They'll say, yeah, climate change is a great thing or it's not a great thing. It's a big thing that we got to care about. No one's going to sit there and very rare are people going to sit there and say, well, it's not a big issue. We don't really have to worry about. So they did a poll after all of this and they found out the protests have been extremely unpopular. And this is information coming from the Federalist. Again, if you want to read the whole article, I don't want to sit here and read the whole article. It's a very long. Federalist is known for their really long, well-researched articles. Um, but I just want to read a small snippet of it Let's and talking about how climate change is not really as popular as people think it is, or at least the fight to combat climate change. Uh, a YouGov poll on Thursday found that 63% sympathized with the commuters who pulled the protesters off the train. So this was for people in London who were pulling those protesters off of the train in the tube. And that only 13% said they support the protesters. Now this is easy to see why even if one believes in catastrophic man-made climate change and supports policies to limit or reverse it, there's only so much the average person is going to do. Skipping work to indulge extremists, extremists demonstrating on top of a train simply isn't an option for most people. Neither is going without electricity or foregoing air travel. In fact, most people are increasingly of two minds about climate change. On the one hand, they fear it and want something to be done. On the other hand, they're not willing to do anything extreme. That's what a recent poll by the Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation found. The vast majority of Americans, about 8 in 10, said climate change is man-made. About half said urgent action is needed, and nearly 4 in 10 said it's a crisis. At the same time, fewer than 4 in 10 said they were willing to make major sacrifices or pay it out of their own pockets. So, less than 50%, like 40%, are willing to make these major sacrifices. In that sense, the scene at that train and the station in London on Thursday morning is really the entire climate change debate in microcosm. When extremist climate change ideology conflicts with the facts of everyday life, like commuters need to get to work, most people choose the latter. If people aren't willing to give up relatively minor things, they'll never support the radical emission cuts and structural changes to the economy espoused by advocates of the Green New Deal, like AOC. Maybe that's because most people know these changes would wreck economic devastation across the world and condemn millions of people to poverty. Consider the aims of the group behind the London protest, Extinction Rebellion, wants the UK government to declare a climate emergency, reduce carbon emissions to net zero in six years, and form a citizen assembly to oversee the changes. Whether the group will admit it or not, reducing carbon emissions to net zero in six years would devastate the economy of the United Kingdom and plunge it into a pre-industrial dystopia. Simply put, most people aren't on board with that. So this just goes to show you that a lot of the people, and this is, I keep coming back to it. I stick to a lot of the same principles and things that I talk about here on this podcast. What is a winning political strategy? What is a winning political strategy? And I've said this before. It's all about, and everyone says it's about the economy, stupid. I, I it's, I, it's broader than that, and my theory is it's what I call the kitchen table politics. Kitchen table politics is what it's all about. When it comes down to it, most people, when they're given the choice between what's going to help them survive, what's going to help them make money, what's going to help them provide for their family, they're going to pick those things over these es esoterical 
big questions, rhetorical issues that most people don't really understand. Most people don't know what the debate is. And at the end of the day, if it comes between, do I want to give up my job, my car, my way to support myself and my family for climate change, most people are going to pick the stuff that supports their family and themselves. That's why climate change, it's, it's hard to sell to people and it's, you can, because people are about self-preservation. And I know at the end of the day, people say, well, it's about self-preservation because if we don't do something now, the world's going to like totally end in 12 years. Okay, well, if it's going to end in 12 years and there's nothing we can do to reverse it, then what's, why are we worried about it? That's always my question. If it's going to be 10 or 12 years, who cares? What are we going to do in 10 or 12 years that's going to radically change what happens? Even if we don't know that climate change is actually man-made or it's actually... Um, or if it's actually something we can reverse. I mean, it's very narcissistic of us as humans, as mankind, to think that somehow we can reverse what's going on with this globe. I mean, we have been such a small part of this globe's entire history for us to think that in 10 to 12 years, which is a blip in the lifespan of this planet, we think we're going to be able to change it is very narcissistic and almost unreasonable to think about. Now I'm going to have to find a YouTube. I'm going to add this into the show notes. There is a great YouTube video with Dan Pena. And I'm going to warn you, it's not safe for work. There's a lot of F bombs because Dan Pena is, he's, he's a spirited guy, but he brought up a good point about climate change and why he says it's all just a big hoax. The climate, I'm not going to dispute that the climate does change. That's like saying, I'm going to dispute that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I can't dispute that. I, can, I can't dispute that climate does change. Every year, we have different seasons. Every year, we have different cycles. Every year, so one year, it's really warm and hot in California. Next year, it's super rainy. Climate does change. So that's why it's such a basic, it, that's why they kind of got rid of the whole global warming thing because it was debunked as whether or not, whether we can say it's, it's global warming or it's man-made. Now they just say it's climate change because how can you dispute climate change? The climate changes all the time. But Dan Pena said, and he made a really, really good point. First off, he told the story about how he went down to Antarctica to spend some time with his wife because that's what I guess billionaires do. They spend time in Antarctica on vacation. He was talking to a scientist down there and the scientist basically said, when it comes to all of this, when it comes to climate change and humans and what we have done, it's nothing but a fart in the wind. There's nothing we've done that really made that big of a difference in the climate and how it's, it's, it's going about. Just look at all the predictions that Al Gore made in Inconvenient Truth. Have any of them come to fruition? He said 15 years ago that all of the eastern seaboard in California was going to be underwater if we don't do anything. None of it's changed. President Obama just bought a, a sea, an oceanfront property up in Massachusetts. He doesn't seem too worried about actually the rising oceans. But the point Dan Pena made is that if you look at all of the money being dumped by banks and developers into 
oceanfront condos, beachfront condos in places like Florida or California, you look at that and say, not any of these contracts or any of these agreements have anything to do with climate change. No one brings up climate change when they're building an oceanfront property. Why is that? It's because these people who spend their lives looking at the dollars and cents, predicting everything from the area to the demographics, to the changing demographics, to the money coming in, to this, that, and the other thing. They look at every single thing to determine whether it's a good loan or not to develop this property. So you're gonna tell me the banks look at this and say, everything looks great, but I know that at the end of the day, in 10 to 12 years, you're not gonna be able to make your money back because we're gonna be underwater and the world's gonna end. The banks don't look at that. The banks don't care because they don't, if, they, if it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to be underwater or that the world was gonna end in 10 to 12 years, Banks would never, ever, ever loan a dollar out to these developers. They would never help in building any of this oceanfront property. All oceanfront property would cease to exist because everyone, every banker, every developer would look at it and say, well, I need this building to be here, hopefully, I don't know, the next 50 to 80 years. But if the world's gonna end in 10 to 12, then I'm gonna lose my entire investment. Or if it's gonna be underwater in 10 to 12 years, I'm gonna lose my entire investment. Smart investors and financiers, you look at the finance people who look at the reality of it, dollars and cents, real, uh, real evidence, real objective evidence, know that climate change is not that big of a, it's not gonna change what they do. If it was, things would be different. Just look at the bankers, look at the financiers, look at what they're putting their money in. Because these people have to get everything down to the dollar and cent when it comes to when they're investing in these properties. But I'll post a link, it's a really funny video. Uh, he kind of yells at this woman, <laughs> this woman who is kind of obnoxious, but it's kind of funny to hear him yell at her. Um, but again, he makes this excellent point. If climate change was such a big deal and it was a foregone conclusion, and we knew this for absolute certainty that the world was going to end in 10 to 12 years, or that we knew to the day or the year that oceans were going to rise, why do we continue to build oceanfront property? Why do financiers continue to invest in oceanfront property and not care about climate change? Why does someone like President Obama, who's been harping on climate change, buy oceanfront property if he thinks the world's going to end in 10 to 12 years or that the oceans are going to rise? I mean, obviously, if President Trump gets eight years, that's only, only going to exasperate the, the oceans rising at a faster level, right? Because supposedly President Trump doesn't care about the environment. So why would... President Obama go out and buy that if he thinks that, well, it's good. The ocean's going to rise and wipe away my house in five to 10 years anyway. It doesn't make any sense because it's about hypocrisy. And going back to Robert Francis O'Rourke, it's climate change is not about the actual climate. It's about control and it's about the church of climate change and the religion and bowing down to the religion and sacrificing everything at the altar. Everything we have Every civil liberty we have, our families, our money, everything needs to be sacrificed at the altar in the church of climate change. You have to give up total control and let the church of climate change just come in and run your life. 
And that's why climate change is just coded speak to take over every aspect of your life. Most importantly, they just want to take over the economy. They want to say, we want to be able to take over housing because we need to fight climate change. We need to be able to take over the schools because of climate change. We need to be able to take over uh, our entire economic system because of climate change. Because even though you can see the hypocrisy around you, they continue to go with this argument simply because it's not about the climate changing it's not about this world ending it's about fear-mongering and it's about you sacrificing what your liberties are what your freedom is how you can support your family to the church of climate change that's what it's about so when you hear them talk about it just think in the back of your head how are they, you always ask this question when they start talking about climate change, when they have huge town halls for seven or eight hours on CNN or MSNBC and they all espouse climate change. Think and ask this question if you're watching it and say, how is this? How is this being framed to take control over my life? And just look at it through that lens and you'll start to see the problem with the climate change argument. Uh, so with that, I want to move on to the next article. We're heading into the California stuff. This should be no shocker to anybody when it comes to Gruesome Newsome. This is an article from the Foxes and the Hound. It's about the fact that uh, Gruesome Newsome took the gas tax money that was supposed to be spent on roads and switched it. So um, going back to the whole climate change issue, this is uh, Foxes and the Hound, written by Joel Fox. I'll post it in the show notes. The flare-up over moving transportation funds from fixing road projects to alternative transportation modes to fight, fight climate change has the distinct feel of a bait-and-switch on the public, even though Newsom administration denies the charge. Last month, Governor Newsom signed an executive order to leverage more than $5 billion in annual state transportation spending for construction, operations, and maintenance to help reverse the trend of increased fuel consumption and reduce greenhouse emissions or greenhouse gas emissions associated with the transportation sector. Among the items cited in the executive order was to reduce congestion by encouraging people to get out of their cars and fund transportation options such as transit, walking, and biking. Critics say the money cited in the executive order comes from the revenue raised by the gas tax increase of 2017 SB1. Voters affirmed the use of the tax money for roads in no uncertain terms when they rejected Prop 6 the next year in an attempt to re repeal the tax. The rhetoric during the campaign from the government and its allies was an affirmation to use the money for roads. The California State Transportation Agency insists that SB1 money is protected and that fixing roads is the agency's top priority. Others don't buy it. Sean Yadon, Yadon? CEO of the California Trucking Association argued if the effect of the executive order is to divert funds from roads and bridge repairs, these projects will once again be placed on the back burner, leading to increased congestion and unsafe roads for all motors. Assemblyman Republican leader Marie Waldron said, it's time to use this money appropriately and stop the Newsom administration's bait and switch. State actions back up the critics. The administration is putting off some road fixes while intending to spend more on alternative transit. Projects to widen highways in the Central Valley and San Luis Obispo have been set aside 
for now with the money earmarked for those projects to be used elsewhere to meet the climate change challenge. There is no question what is going on here. More engineering by government planners to dictate how Californians should live the way of the infamous road diets, living the way of the infamous road diets. You know about road diets, slimming road corridors down to a lane to make room for bicycle and or walking paths. The plants that commuters stewing that produced a wave of recriminations against local public officials. State transportation authorities can expect the same when word gets out about the priority and money shift. Using road repairs as a reason to raise taxes then divert funds to other projects feels like a double cross, even if the specific dollars for other projects didn't come from SB1 taxes. The road fix tax money was supported to be added to current road funds, not substitute for them. The problem for the governor and the transportation agencies is that it goes deeper than spending choices. It undercuts trust in government and certainly qualifies as a bait and switch. As usual, if anyone, and I'm not surprised, this should not be a shocker to anybody that Gruesome Newsome took the money that was there that we were duped into voting for. I would, you know, the way they worded Prop 6 and they did it deceptively on purpose so that people were confused to not repeal the gas tax. You knew this was going to be a money grab. And it says, don't be shocked when you vote for taxes in California and you get an administration like, like Gruesome Newsome and he doesn't care about ethics. He doesn't care about bait and switch. He gets his hands on the money and he does what he wants with it. This is not surprising to me at all. If anyone is actually who follows politics in California is shocked by this, then you're not paying attention. A lot of people were foreseeing this. They knew that this money was not going to always go towards road fixtures. You knew that all of California's roads were not going to be fixed because of this gas tax increase. If you look around and the streets you're driving on are still garbage, it's because you knew this money was not going to be used for road fixes. You knew it was going to be used for, quote unquote, fighting climate change and other ways of public transit and bicycles and people walking and stuff like that, which I'm not against. You want to walk to work, you want to bike to work, I'm not going to stop you. But guess what? Millions of people still use the highway. And this is the government trying to force people to change their lifestyle. Public transit's not an option for everybody in this state. It's not even a good option for most people here in San Diego County. The trolley only goes so many places. The bus takes forever. Public transit is not a viable option unless you put in the time to figure it out and have the time to spend hours on public transit. And bicycling here in San Diego, well, if you want to bicycle around downtown or you want to bicycle in certain neighborhoods, there's plenty of lanes for that. But bicycling to work, if you live in one neighborhood or you want to get to another neighborhood and you want to bicycle, it's not a real viable option. So millions of people are still using our roads every single day. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that every time you vote for a new tax, every time you vote for a new tax here in California, the money's not going to be used how they tell you. And this is why I brought this up around last year, around the time that all these props were up for a vote. Here's the thing. 
whenever you see a proposition, and this is an easy way to go through, if you are a conservative who doesn't like raising taxes or raising money or spending more money and giving it to the government, this is, there's a real simple way to just eliminate and say no on any proposition. If it says this will authorize the use of the city to, to issue a bond, because that means it's basically asking to borrow money. And you're fine with that. But then the bond obligation has to be paid eventually. Now, if they don't have any projections of how they're actually going to pay for it, if you can actually believe that their projections are true and that they're not going to lie to you and bait and switch you, then you're going to have these outstanding bond obligations. And when you say that, oh, we're going to take these bonds out, we're going to take this, you're just authorizing the city to take on debt. Now, when the city gets too much debt or your city or your county or whatever, takes on too much debt in the form of bond obligations, guess what happens? Well, well we got to raise taxes because we got to pay off these bond obligations. Otherwise, we're going to go belly up or bankrupt. That's an easy way to see if you see a bond obligation, and they use this all the time, issue a bond. Oh, issue, we're going to issue a bond to raise money. That always ends up in a bond obligation having to be paid back. And how does the government pay back bonds? money that they make off of whatever they're raising the bond for? No. Governments only make money through one one venue. They make money through taxing the citizens. So you're authorizing, it's like if someone in your family said, well, I'm going to uh, apply for this loan and I'm going to put you on as a co-signer. If your, your family member all of a sudden decided, oh, I'm not going to pay this anymore. I can't pay it. Guess who has to step up and pay it? You have to pay it. And that's what happens with citizens here. Every time you issue a bond, it's more debt obligation. But going back to the gas tax, every time you see these taxes, don't be surprised when they bait and switch you. And they write these, don't, don't be surprised, because they write these things deceptively. They have lobbyists, they have lawyers who work on the language of these propositions. So when these propositions go into effect, they know exactly what they can do and what they can't do. They don't write these with altruistic ideas of saying, we're going to use the gas tax to fix roads. No ifs, ands, or buts, period. The end. They write it so they can say, oh, well, we could put it towards transportation that is deemed uh acceptable or they make it wishy-washy language so that the next governor who comes in who can just look at the oh whoop, i'm going to issue i'm going to take that money and spend it for something else and the same goes for basically anything when it comes to government but california especially they write these propositions so that they can give themselves this wiggle room that when they start seeing the money coming in when they start see it all trickle in they can say, oh, I'm going to take some of this money. I'm going to spend it over here, not on the roads that I promised the citizens. And that's because they want to do that. They want to do it so they give themselves the power to do it. They're not stupid. They don't, they don't write these things just because. They write these things because they want to figure out how they can give themselves more power, more money, more tax revenue, stuff like that. So who's surprised? Who's surprised that Gavin Newsom took this money and started to divert it? I'm not. Because you know it's going to happen. Every time you raise a tax, whether it's federal or state, 
they always find a way to take the money for their own purposes or their own political agendas. So while we still drive around on crappy roads, Gruesome Newsome is still out there doing whatever he wants with your gas tax money. So for people who voted for to keep the gas tax because he was going to fix our roads. We need people to fix our roads. Well, don't say I told you so. Because this was you knew this was going to happen. You knew that he was going to do this. So moving on to another article. Because someone brought this up, and I actually saw this article um, regarding contractors, independent contractors, freelancers, the gig economy. Um, this article originally came from Cal Matters. Again, I'll post the link to it. It's called California's AB5 will force more companies to leave. Proposition 13 was called the political equivalent of a sonic boom by economist Art Laffer in limiting how much local governments could drain from Californians through property taxes, fed up voters changed the political landscape with the 1978 ballot measure in a way that few state policies have before or since. Howard Jarvis Proposition 13 swept the country and made headlines around the world. Sounds a lot like Assembly Bill 5. The difference is Prop 13 is a force for good, AB 5 is a destroyer. Worse, other states are determined to duplicate California's mistake. AB5, passed and signed uh, last month, virtually bars Californians from working in the gig economy. The law, which implements a California Supreme Court decision, implements imposes a three-pronged test that identifies who's still free to be a contract worker and who has to be a hired employee. A worker can be an independent contract only if he or she, A, is free from the control and direction of the hirer in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of such work, and in fact, B, performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, and C, is customarily engaged in independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the work performed for the hiring entity. Is there a freelance worker who could possibly pass Part B? Under that requirement, janitors could work as independent contractors only when they have contracts with companies not in the business of cleaning, or a rideshare driver could work under a contract with Uber or Lyft only if those companies were primarily in the business of, say, selling vacuum cleaners. It's a rigid framework, says labor law firm Fisher Phillips, that will appear, if it hasn't already, in the nightmares of your average gig economy business executives. It's already a bad dream for workers. Quote, despite AB5, Uber drivers would rather quit than become employees, unquote, reads the headline of a first installment of a two-part series in the online publication Los Angelino. One driver interviewed for the story said that, quote, when the lawmakers make these laws, they don't live our lives. Quote, I have to pick up my kids or drop them off. I do that and come back to work driving. What shift is going to let me do that other than this? Los Angeles Times columnist George Skelton, no, pep, no Puppet for Corporations, recently wrote, quote, There are tens of thousands of independent contractors who apparently don't feel the slightest bit exploited, and they don't want anything to do with formal employment or unions, quote. The few able to pass the test will remain independent contractors might not be independent for long. In a signing statement, Governor Gavin Newsom said the next step is creating pathways for more workers to form a union, collectively bargain to earn more, and have a stronger voice at work, unquote. It is in this spirit, he said, that would persuade political, labor, and business leaders to support an effort which workers excluded from the National Labor Relations Act would have the right to organize and collectively bargain. 
when Skelton said that maybe the aim of AB5 was to, quote, rope in more dues-paying union members, unquote, he might have been more correct than he realized. Where Proposition 13 set off an extended era of prosperity, AB5 will rob workers of the freedom and flexibilities they want and sometime need for freelance work and force more companies to leave the state than already are. California's once dynamic economy is on track to becoming permanently sclerotic. AB5 is a historic mistake. No one knows what kind of jobs uh, Americans will be working in 50 years, not even 25, just as who lived the Depression. No idea what was work was going to look like in the 21st century. Classifying jobs through the government order is going to hold back the natural evolution of work. There are already regrets and there will be many more. So, why is this a big deal to you? As most people who are employees, if you're listening, maybe not a big deal. To most people who use an Uber, big deal. Most people who use a Lyft, really big deal. To most people who use Postmates, DoorDash, any of those services where you can be an independent contractor and turn on and just start working, Uber Eats, all that stuff. This is a big deal. And you might say, well, it sounds nice. It's good for the employees. They're going to get benefits. Wrong. The idea of an independent contractor is that you get to come and go as you please and do what you need to do to make money. Limiting that already in a state that is so expensive to live in when it's already expensive to live in, people are trying to use these jobs to make extra money. Maybe they're using it to pay school. Maybe they're using it to save up for a business. These jobs can be crucial lifelines to a lot of California citizens. I, for example, I freelance. I freelance as an attorney. So what does that mean? That means that I can go and work for other attorneys on a project by project basis and I'm paid out as an independent contractor. Under this, this is gonna be a problem because how do I perform work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business? And in the legal world itself, we're starting to see more and more virtual receptionists. We're starting to see virtual legal assistants and paralegals. We're starting to see more contract attorneys this is an issue because you have firms that are trying to cut back on costs who can't cut back on costs now by hiring a contract attorney when they need it. So a small firm that just needs help on one project, they do civil litigation. They need someone to come in and help them. They just need a contract or project attorney to come in for this little bit because they got a big case and they need some extra hands to work on it. But they don't want to hire the person. They don't want to hire the person on and give them the benefits and pay the payroll taxes, which is a good option as some businesses go. Some businesses exploit it and they try and say, well, you're an independent contractor. Even if they work 30 hours a week and they're told when they have to show up, that's not an independent contractor. Independent contractor is, hey, I have this project. I want you to come in and work for me and help me get it done. I'm not going to tell you when, it, when. I just have to tell you when it has to be done, how you get it done. That's all up to you. you use your own office, you use your own computer, whatever. You do your thing to help me get it done. And that's huge in the legal world now because you're starting to see solo and small firms using this model to help grow their businesses faster or stay solo and still take on big cases because they know they can go out 
and hire a contract attorney or a contract paralegal or a contract legal assistant to help out just for those matters. That creates an enormous problem for people hiring and trying to grow business here in California. It provides, especially with the age of the internet, anybody can be an independent contractor and a freelancer in this gig economy. If you are a graphic designer, okay, and you want to work for somebody and do some graphic design work, you want to be an independent contractor, can't do that. Only if it's not outside. Now, this may be an exception. If I, as a, as a business, I don't do graphic design and I want to hire someone to do graphic design, that could be an independent contractor. But that doesn't help when you have businesses that are trying to use the flexibility of the independent contractor to grow their business or, for that matter, allow people the opportunity to make money on the side to pay and support themselves, like I said, in an already expensive state to either pay for food or rent or support their children or to pay for themselves to go to school or maybe they're doing it to start their own business. Maybe they're doing it because they've started their own business and they want to just make some money on the side while their business is going. They say, okay, well, I started my own business. It's not bringing in money. Let me go be an Uber driver for a little bit, at least to pay the bills. Maybe they... Maybe they work all day at their business and then they drive Uber or Lyft at night or they do Postmates or something like that. Making this an employee relationship is a problem because an employee and legally, and this is just a little snippet, it is a real simple, 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 and I'm not an employment lawyer. This is just simply what I know from my time in law school. The difference between an employee and an independent con contractor is control. If you are an employee, I have control over your hours. I get to schedule when you show up. I get to schedule when you have to leave. I schedule when you take your break. I schedule all that stuff. I have the control over what days you show up. I have control over that. That's what an employee is. An independent contractor does not have that. You have the freedom to work on your own time to get the project done when you need to get it done, to use your own materials, to use your own, whether it's your own car, whether it's your own office, whether it's your own, you know, whatever materials you have, you don't have to use the employers. It gives you that flexibility. Now imagine if you took all these Uber drivers and made them employees. What does that do? You have all these people who are technically employees of Uber. What control can Uber exert over what, what what power can uber exert over those drivers they can exert a lot because as an employee there's a whole different level of control there is no more freedom you've lost that freedom so if they say for example this is a wild speculation this is just me wildly speculating as an employer, I can tell you when to go home and when you're done for the day and say, come back tomorrow if you're my employee. What happens if you're an Uber driver and all of a sudden Uber contacts you and says, eh, we're good. We don't we don't need you to work tonight. Or they start blacking out days that you can work and say, well, we, we don't need you to work this day. You know, there's a lot of people out there. Um, demand's really low. So we're going to up demand so we can up our prices. So you're going to stay home and we're going to turn off your Uber. Could you imagine? 
Could you imagine the people who are in limbo in their lives who all of a sudden they don't have access to that lifeline or that financial lifeline or that way to make extra money because you are now an employee as opposed to an independent contractor. It's a mess. And it's again because California does these things not because they have any interest in help helping businesses. They have no interest in helping businesses. Anything California could think of when it comes to business, anything they could think of, they think, oh, well, what's good for business? Let's see. What's good for business in California? Uh, let's do the complete freaking opposite of what is good for business in California. Should we make it easier for people to start businesses? No, we shouldn't. We should make it even harder, make it more prohibitive, more cost prohibitive, more expensive, more regulations. We should just do the opposite. What happens when we want to hire people? Uh, should we make it easier for businesses to grow through the use of independent contractors so they can take on more work and grow their business? Uh, no, we should all of a sudden decide that everyone's going to be an employee. There's no such thing as an independent contractor anymore. Or make the test so absolutely difficult that it's impossible for people to be independent contractors. Only in very slight circumstances. So, this is going to go into effect in January. It's going to have an enormous ripple effect on the business of California. It's going to have an enormous economic ripple effect and you're going to see it it may not happen january 1st 2020 but it may happen april may 2020 halfway through the year in 2020 when you start to see the economic repercussions of this you're going to see how this is a bad decision and hopefully, I can only hope that somebody comes along and funds a proposition to repeal this because it is an enormous mistake on the part of California to allow this to happen. It will have a bad ripple effect as worse than most things I've seen in California when it comes to businesses. This will have an enormous impact. So with that, I'm going to end this podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. Check out social media, California Underground. If you have any questions, you want to email in, californiaunderground at protonmail.com. Check us out on anchor.fm slash californiaunderground to leave a voice message. And stay tuned. Always, every week, I'm trying to get these out. Leave a like, subscribe, share it with your friends, and I'll see you next time. Remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 